This is The Guardian. Today, in Colombia, a glimpse at how the pandemic has reshaped politics, opening the door to the most left-wing president in the country's history. Throughout Latin American history, as left-wing parties have taken power across the continent, one country has kept them out of office, often by force. Last week, that changed. For the first time in its history, Colombia has elected a leftist president. Colombia has a new leader, and Gustavo Petro is nothing like anyone who's come before. Es historia. Lo que estamos escribiendo en este momento, una historia nueva para Colombia, para América Latina, para el mundo. He's promising to end the drug war, change Colombia's relationship with the US, and shift the country's economy away from gas and oil. But he's going to face challenges, and maybe not just political ones. On election night, he's celebrating this historic victory that he's been really like fighting for his whole, his whole career. And the, the atmosphere in this huge arena is elation. Everyone is as happy as they can be. And yet, also on stage, at the side of him, are, are, are two police officers holding bulletproof shields, which just reminds you of the danger that he is in and the leftist politicians in Colombia are in. I mean, this is a country that has seen leftist presidential candidates that have done well only on the campaign trail assassinated. And, and this guy's now won. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how a former guerrilla fighter became Colombia's first left-wing president. Joe Parkin Daniels, you cover Colombia for The Guardian, based in Bogota. Can you start by telling me a bit about Gustavo Petro? Gustavo Petro is a Colombian politician. He has been mayor of Bogota. He has ran for president unsuccessfully twice. And now he will be uh, Colombia's next president. He's from the left. For 200 years, we have been governed by the same people. But today begins a transition to the government of change that will benefit all Colombians. He spent his youth, uh, 12 years of his youth, in the uh, ranks of a guerrilla group. He was, he was an armed guerrilla. He was. He was a member of the M19 guerrilla group, uh, which was a guerrilla organization in Colombia in the 70s and 80s. Gustavo Petro, an economist, senator, and former mayor of Bogota, was once part of the April 19th movement, a nationalist leftist guerrilla group fighting for workers' rights. Uh, I feel like that should be a kind of um, insurmountable hurdle to becoming president. I mean, what's going on in Colombia? Well, that's, that, that's one of the things that's so interesting about him. When people think about Colombia and they think about Colombian rebel groups, you often get these ideas of the FARC, of maybe the ELN. These are these kind of communist Marxist rebel groups all tied up into drug trafficking that are largely hated by just about everyone. 
The M19 was a very different proposition. They demobilized in 1990. So they've been off the scene for a while. You know, any, any tempers that flared at their mention has, has cooled for a good while now. And rather than fighting to, you know, bring communism to Colombia, their stated goal was to open up democracy in the country. And they did so with these kind of really brazen um, um, attacks. They, they famously uh, uh, stole one of the liberator Simon Bolivar's swords. They took over an army weapons depot and stole like 5,000 guns. And then in 1985, they took over the Palace of Justice, where Colombia's Supreme Court is based, and held a bunch of justices there hostage. And then the government response to that was to lay siege to the building and they fired on the building with tanks. And in that whole tragedy, half of the Supreme Court's justices died. Uh, it, was, it was really, really sad. Wow. And how much of this was Gustavo Petro involved in? Like, was he out there with a gun, you know, firing at people? So in his book, he says that, yes, he was uh, out there armed. Uh, he went by the alias Aureliano, who was uh, one of the uh, characters, a, a liberal revolutionary general in, in Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude. He claims that he was uh, tortured. He'd been arrested for possession of weapons. Obviously, he was younger then, so he wasn't one of their leaders, but he was absolutely a member. So why did he and so many other leftists feel the need to pick up guns? Like, Why did they feel like that was their only recourse when their demands, as you say, were not particularly radical, just a better democracy? Um, because it was very difficult to do things democratically when organizing at a grassroots level in your community could get you killed. In the mid-80s, when uh, the FARC attempted a, a peace process, the members of their political party were, were massacred in huge numbers, thousands. And so every time that the left tried to raise its voice back then, it would have its head cut off. And so that's why people felt the only way to do it was with guns. How did Petro personally make his transition into politics? What was his journey out, out of militancy in, you know, into a, a suit? Well, his, I mean, his personal journey would have been like everyone else's, which would have been to have uh, turned the rifle in, to have signed up to an internationally monitored process of rehabilitation. And then, like uh, all of his former comrades, they got together and they started doing grassroots politics. They started knocking on doors. They started canvassing. From there, he uh, worked his way up to senator. He became mayor of Bogota, then a senator again. He ran for president unsuccessfully. And now he's, he's just won the, the, the highest office. Has he spoken personally, Gustavo, about his motives for becoming disillusioned with violence? Like, has he said why he decided the gun wasn't going to achieve what he wanted and he was going to, going to do it through politics instead? He has spoken repeatedly that, you know, he has seen firsthand how, how much Colombia's intractable conflicts have just led to more bloodletting. And that's why he has always, since he came onto the mainstream scene, advocated for peace and that's why he has been seen as the supporter of various peace processes that are still going on now. You said that he was the, the mayor of the Colombian capital Bogota. 
what's he like in power? What do we know about the way that he actually governs? We know that he can be quite high-handed. We know that he doesn't take criticism all that well. And we know that he governs often with policies that are geared towards social justice. So one of his trademark policies was a harm reduction program for drug addicts and homeless uh, people in Bogota. Um, so we know that he, his, his style is aloof, but also very focused on those most vulnerable. We also know that he faces a lot of opposition and that always makes it hard for him to get things done to enact his agenda. He, he, he's divisive. And that divisiveness is something that saw him as, a, as very good in opposition. But now that he's in power, the, the, the governing is another ballgame. And so in his presidential run this year, has he taken the same approach? High-handed, my way or the highway? Well, that's what's been interesting. So, of course, uh, just, just to rewind very briefly, he, he runs for president, uh, you know, four years ago. And though getting, he made it to the runoff, which was further than any leftist had ever got then, uh, he was beaten convincingly by the outgoing president now, uh, Ivan Duque. He ran that campaign with the same kind of divisiveness and the same lack of deal-making. What we've seen this campaign was really interesting because really from day one, he started cozying up to the, you know, in inverted commas, traditional politicians. He's really built a coalition this time. And one of the most prominent bridges that he built was inviting to be his vice president, Francia Marquez. And who is Francia Marquez? Why was she such an important person to partner up with? So Francia Marquez is a human and environmental rights defender, a black woman from rural Cauca, which is one of the most downtrodden and conflict-ridden regions in the country. She's been fighting her whole life bravely against gold mines that have been extracting wealth from her community and bringing with them a host of violence and human rights abuses. In 2014, Francia Marquez led a 10-day, 350-mile march of 80 women to Colombia's capital, Bogota, that led to the removal of all illegal miners and equipment from La Toma. Despite threats from multinational corporations and paramilitary, she continues to fight back, although she's been forced to leave her home. She ran as president herself and did much better than people thought she would, given that she was really a, 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 a well outside the political mainstream. And when she came as runner-up in the Pacto Historico, which is Petro's coalition's uh, primary, it was thought until that point that Petro would cozy up to someone from somewhat from the establishment to bring those on board. But when Francia came runner up winning nearly 800,000 votes all on her own, it was seen as right. She can help me get votes. And also she does bring in a whole host of representation that many Colombians did not feel that they ever had. She was a single mother working uh, multiple jobs. She's worked as a artisanal gold miner, like panning for gold in rivers. She has been a house cleaner, domestic worker. She's suffered violence. She's been displaced countless times. She's uh, survived assassination attempts. And so many rural Colombians 
Afro-Colombians, indigenous Colombians, identify with her story. That's what helped get out the vote in, in a lot of rural Colombia, I suspect. In her victory speech, she even said, after 214 years, we've achieved a government of the people, a popular government of people with calloused hands, a government of people on their feet, of the nobodies of Colombia. Incredible. Uh, who were they up against? He was running against, uh, in the second round, Rodolfo Hernandez, who was a social media savvy political outsider who was very light on policies but had some really quite wacky ideas. He's sounding pretty familiar to me, Joe, at this point. Yes, that, that, that does sound quite familiar, doesn't it? The man dubbed Colombia's Donald Trump. Algunos medios le han llamado el Trump colombiano. And that's why some observers are quite relieved that Colombians chose, albeit someone who is himself an outsider, at, at least someone whose ideas have their own inherent logic. And what were some of Hernandez's ideas? One of the ideas he floated was that every Colombian who hasn't seen the sea should go to the seaside, and he would like help them do that. Okay. That was one. I can agree with that. The sea, the sea is wonderful. That, that's fair enough. Yep, yep, yep. He's also known for these outlandish comments. He once described Venezuelan women as factories for poor children. Oh, jeez. Okay. Obviously, we've seen this type of character around the world, and often they triumph. But in this case, we have these two equally incredible figures, a former guerrilla and a former domestic worker, actually win. They overcome all of these barriers in Colombian politics and the kind of, you know, maverick, social media-driven candidate who's triumphed elsewhere. And, and Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez become the leaders of Colombia. How did that happen? First and foremost, it's dissatisfaction with the status quo. They see the status quo as having brought violence and inequality to Colombia for 214 years. And what's really like fermented this vote in some large degree was uh, this massive wave of protests that started in 2019 and then uh, it was kind of reignited last year and lasted for two months in the street. Once again, they're taking to the streets of Colombia's capital, making their voices heard. Those protests started over unpopular tax reform and, and ended up kind of morphing into this howl of rage against inequality and, and poverty. And those protests were met with brutal police violence. Most of the police shootings happened under the cover of night in the city's poorest barrios, known for fierce resistance. And that really showed that people are not OK with this Colombia anymore. And one of the reasons that things came to their heads so much is, of course, the pandemic. The pandemic has pushed millions of Colombians into destitution with indigenous groups among the hardest hit. The pandemic affected, obviously, everyone in the world, but it, it especially affected the poorest. And in a society as unequal as Colombia, that meant that a large, large swathe of the country was really, really hurt by the pandemic. Poor Colombians were dying at alarming rates, while the rich Colombians were flying to Miami to get vaccinated. And then, in Colombia, peace processes with rebels, most importantly, the peace process that was signed in 2016 with the FARC rebels, 
opened up civic space, which allowed Colombians to suddenly voice their discontent without it being so easy to stigmatise them as being supporters of the FARC. Interesting. So in the past, when people did voice a kind of leftist critique of government, it was easy to say, oh, they're supporters of the militants. But then suddenly, after these peace deals are signed, that stigma is gone. You can articulate a genuine left-wing message. Of course, because it's quite hard to say, oh, you're just supporting the FARC. It's like, no, well, if I were just supporting the FARC, well, I'll go and vote for them. I'm not supporting an insurgency that's trying to topple the Colombian state. So, Joe, tell me about Petro's platform. How radical are his plans for Colombia? Well, it's access to healthcare, access to education. He does want to transition from fossil fuels, which, of course, spooks uh, markets and, and the business class. He wants to likely pursue peace negotiations with other rebel groups, namely the ELN. The left-wing rebel group known as the ELN, composed of around 2,500 fighters, announced they were ready for talks with Petro's government. And he has spoken about transitioning from an extractive country to an agricultural and manufacturing-based one. What about when it comes to the war on drugs? Like, Colombia has played this almost, like, mythic role in the production of, of cocaine. It's, you know, obviously been dramatised in shows like Narcos. What, what's Petro's policy on dealing with drug production and drug abuse in Colombia? He doesn't have a firm policy that we can really point to for tackling drug production. He has spoken against the uh, forced eradication of coca crops, but that's primarily because he believes that those strategies don't work rather than because he doesn't want to eradicate those crops. He has spoken more about replacing those crops, about encouraging those uh, poor farmers that grow those crops with other crops. Um, But uh, in terms of how he will battle criminal structures, drug gangs, that does actually remain to be seen. And do you think he has a strategy for how to do that? Because it seems like he's facing entrenched interests in the economy, in drugs, in oil and gas. Like, he has a pretty hard task ahead of him. Do you think he has a kind of strategy for how he'll actually do what no Colombian president has ever done before? I don't think he has an absolute strategy on how to eradicate cocaine, but that's also because I think it would be impossible and especially impossible in four years, which is his maximum kind of mandate because in Colombia you can only run for president once. I feel like I've seen this kind of headline a lot over the past year that an unusually left-wing candidate has triumphed in Chile, Peru, Bolivia, and now in Colombia. Is this part of a wider trend in Latin America? Each of these countries have, of course, their own dynamics, but... It is part of a wider trend, yes. And I think that what's really caused this recent and urgent wave of change is the pandemic. Latin America has this phenomenon a lot where things happen in waves because the region seems to have all its elections in the same year. We're really in a post-pandemic election year. And so that, I think, is why we're seeing this wave right now. That's really interesting. I mean, hanging over Petro's campaign was this critique made by both conservatives in Colombia, but also in the US, which has sought to dominate the region for well over a century. And their critique is that a populist left-wing candidate is going to end up ruining Colombia. 
turning it from a relatively stable place politically into a country like neighbouring Venezuela, where political freedoms have been eroded and economic conditions are among the worst in the world. Colombia has historically been an ally in the region, as Latin America gave rise to socialist governments in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador and Peru. How has Petro addressed those fears, particularly those comparisons with Venezuela? He for a start, is nowhere near as radical in his rhetoric as the strongman Nicolas Maduro next door, nor as much as Chavez was. But they, on their own terms, would be nervous with Petro. Colombia has been stable, despite many people feeling it's been stable in a way that's unfair for much of the population. And there will inevitably be some dramatic sea change in that. We will, we will have to wait and see how well... Petro and the US get along. So far, the US has congratulated uh, Petro, has not voiced any outlandish concern. Right now, it seems tentatively kind of normal. And what has Petro himself said about how he views the US's role in, in Colombia and the region? He's not spoken, uh, uh, at least recently, of the US in particularly inflammatory terms. He's very professorial in his rhetoric. He speaks of how the whole system is unfair and it needs to be retooled so that those most vulnerable are those with some representation and recourse to change it. We've already seen a slightly hysterical reaction from Republicans in, in the US, including Ron DeSantis in Florida, saying that, you know, describing Petra as a, as a narco-terrorist. For people that believe in freedom in the Western Hemisphere uh, to elect a, a former narco-terrorist and a Marxist uh, to, to lead Colombia is going to be disastrous. Florida Republicans speaking very critically of leftists in, in Latin America is, is, is really nothing new. And that's, of course, because they're speaking to their base, which is the exiles or the children of exiles and refugees from those countries. Coming up, can Gustavo Petro make his progressive vision for Colombia a reality? And what forces might get in the way? Joe, Colombia is a parliamentary democracy. So just because Petro wants something, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get it. Is he going to be able to convince MPs to back his agenda on policies like trying to transition the economy away from a dependence on, on fossil fuel exports? Well, that's the big question. We will know more as Petro announces his cabinet, for example. If his cabinet happens to be the same of his longtime political allies, over the last 20 years, it's likely to think that then all the other parties in Congress are going to go into opposition mode. If he starts reaching across the aisle, then we might see things starting to get done. If he just goes with hard leftists, I think he'll have a very, very hard time getting his agenda enacted. Delivering on his promises won't be easy for Gustavo Petro as he does not have a majority in Congress and he will have to negotiate to turn his promises into real change. Generally speaking, one of the largest challenges that Petro will face is simply the vastness and diversity of Colombia. And that includes you know, a parliament made up of various parties, many of them opposed or at least sceptical of 
his style and substance. Colombia is a vast country. Implementing something in one place is fraught with entirely different dynamics than in another. And so I think it will not be easy for him for many, many reasons. Joe, this seems like a really big moment in South America where the pandemic and many other factors has helped to propel a whole generation of leaders to power who are far more left-wing than anything that's come before. But at the same time, these leaders are taking power in a world that's still recovering from the pandemic, where we see supply chains in chaos, gas prices higher than they've ever been, food prices at a record high. Is the same force that helped to put someone like Petro in power also potentially going to sabotage his ability to actually enact his agenda? It absolutely could do. That is the risk. I mean, the risk is that people are angry and people have learnt to speak their anger and take to the streets. And the honeymoon could very quickly be over. In Chile, Gabriel Boric was, you know, incredibly popular. And he's seen his popular support plummet in just a few months. The pendulum can swing very quickly at the moment, it seems. And economic forces are, are often well out of a single president's control. The issue when you have a kind of sweeping political ideological change come in from the left in a country that's long been in the hands of the right, you've got a lot of people that see you, rightly or wrongly, as an existential threat. And so uh, you've got a, a large sector of society that from day one wants you to fail, and that's going to be hard for him to, to overcome. Joe Park and Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Joe Parkin Daniels, a reporter based in Columbia. Thanks so much to him. You can read all his coverage of the election at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 